CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Powell Kalite and Marius Svajkos. Dublin developed as a city slowly, over time, with a gradual creep of residential areas connecting the city centre with outlying villages and towns. In the 1930s, as part of an effort to clear tenement housing from the inner city of Dublin, a new housing estate was built along the Grand Canal on the south side of the city, stretching down to Crumlin Village. This is Drimna. A few main thoroughfares sweep through and across the area, and roads branch off to wrap around oval and circle-shaped green areas. The houses are mainly in terraces of three or four, and the large church and school complex sits at its very heart. Besides this church, a few rows of terraces were dedicated to rows of shops made from brown brick. One of these was on Benbulben Road, where it met Ben Madigan Road and its giant oval-shaped green. On Saturday the 23rd of February, 2008, just before 7pm, an altercation broke out just outside that row of shops. Two Polish men, who had been living and working in Ireland, were attacked and killed on the footpath outside their home. When Gardi and ambulances arrived on the scene, implements were found but the suspected murder weapon was not present. Both had been on life support before they finally passed away. It was revealed later that both men became organ donors and had saved the lives of seven people throughout Ireland. Marius Svajkos, who was 29, died on the Monday following the attack, the 24th of February. His housemate, 26-year-old Paolo Kalite, died that Wednesday, on the 27th of February. Both men had worked together at mechanics at an auto body shop on the Long Mile Road. Gardi began questioning local youths and three prime suspects, age 15, 17 and 19, emerged. 
They were from the Kremlin, Inchicore and Tala areas. The 19-year-old was arrested on Monday the 25th and the next day the 15-year-old presented himself to Gardi. Both were released without charge after a lengthy period of questioning. The 16-year-old presented himself to Gardi on Wednesday the 27th of February at 4pm and was questioned until midnight, with the interview resuming at 8am on Thursday morning. Local people said that there were problems in the area with groups of certain young people and that this particular 16-year-old had been seen high-fiving his friends and gloating before he handed himself in. One person described him as quote-unquote feral. He came from a dysfunctional family background and had already dropped out of school and had a number of previous convictions, including carrying offensive weapons and travelling in a stolen car. The Evening Herald reported that CCTV from the scene placed their prime suspect in the case there at the time of the attack and that Gardi had taken a number of witness statements which identified him as the main assailant. Two other, younger youths had also presented themselves at the Garda station for questioning. Gardi believed that one person was responsible for the stabbing, but hadn't ruled out the idea that the weapon, determined to be a screwdriver, had been dropped by the initial suspect and picked up by a second person, who had gone on to inflict further wounds. Residents in Benbulban Road said that they believed the attack had been prompted when a group of young people asked the two men to buy them alcohol. They said they didn't believe that the attack was racially motivated, with one woman saying, quote, It didn't matter who was there at the time, it was going to happen. End quote. The owner of Drimna Takeaway, the chipper that the initial fight took place outside of, said that there always seemed to be trouble in the area with groups of teens. Usually the gang of kids would just annoy people, insulting people and throwing things, but she said she didn't think that it would go as far as it had. Laura Ray expressed exasperation at the situation, saying that they called Gardi regularly. Some of the group of young people would go away when asked to move on by police, and then they'd just come back later. Still others didn't care if the guards came. Ms. Ray, speaking to News Talk Radio, said, quote, They have no respect for police officers, for nobody. End quote. The chipper owner felt that a small minority was giving the Drimna area a bad name. A Garda source told the Evening Herald, quote, The picture is one of feral young teenagers who have no respect for their teachers, the Gardi, their parents or the public in general. They feel like they own the streets. In effect, they've been allowed to do whatever they want with little parental supervision. End quote. Others said it was well known who had been involved in the attack. Eddie O'Neill, secretary of a local football club, said that young people complained of having nothing to do, but added that there was only so much that locals could do themselves. The shops along Benbulban Road began collecting money to help the Schwazkos and Kalita families, and people began to place flowers and cards on the doorstep of the men's home. A bank account was set up by Powell and Marius's employers to try and help the families of the men. Local people felt it was the least they could do. There was no way to ease the pain, but they could make sure that there was no financial hardship due to the repatriation of the victims of this horrific attack. Dr. Tadia Szymowski, a spokesperson from the Polish embassy, said that arrangements were being made to return the two men to their families 
and continued, quote, It's really very tragic. We're all very sad, but it's just, in a way, hooliganism, which has no borders, no frontiers. It could happen anywhere, end quote. Marius's sister, Gauzia, told News Talk Radio that she and her family did not blame the people of Ireland for what had happened to Marius. She said, quote, We prefer to think that this attack could have happened anywhere in the world. Marius was a very good, quiet man, and part of my heart and my mother and father's hearts have died. The people who did this are not human, end quote. A vigil for the men was scheduled to take place at half past six on the 1st of March outside the house on Benbulban Road, and hundreds turned up to remember Powell and Marius. A letter from the Svazka's family was read out, thanking people for their kindness, for the sympathy that they'd received, and thanking the staff at St. James's Hospital who had taken care of Marius and Powell. Garda Commissioner Faulkner Murphy issued an appeal for people to come forward with information and warned that witnesses could be arrested if they did not cooperate with the inquiry. However, Mr Murphy continued that he was pleased with how the investigation was progressing. A file was being prepared to be sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions. There were still concerns that there were various versions of accounts of what had happened in the attack and the Sunday Tribune reported that Gardi still weren't sure who had carried out the actual stabbings. They could place the three suspects at the scene, but there were concerns that if they couldn't establish the complete outline of what had happened, given that none of the suspects had admitted to the stabbing, it might be difficult to secure convictions. They told the press that their main suspect was placing the blame on others, two of his friends. On March 3rd, Gardi arrested a teenage girl in connection with the killing of the two men. The 14-year-old, who had not come to the attention of the Gardi before, had been picked up by detectives working the case at her home just after half seven that morning and brought to Sundrive Road Garda Station. Gardi thought it was possible that this girl had vital information about the stabbing attack which would help Gardie settle what exactly had happened amid the conflicting versions of events that had led to the two deaths. Though Gardie said they had made substantial progress in the investigation, they were also still looking to speak with witnesses who had yet to come forward, who Gardie knew had been present at the time of the attack. The 14-year-old was questioned for a number of hours before being released without charge, Gardie said they would not be preparing a file for the DPP in relation to the girl. The following night, over 2,000 people attended a special mass held in the local church in Drimna, Our Lady of Good Counsel. Our Lady's was built in the 30s when nearly everyone attended mass, and its size reflects that. It's a huge building with a capacity for over 2,300 people, and that night there was standing room only. There was a mix of local people and Polish nationals who came to remember the men. President Mary McAleese, the Minister for Justice, an assistant Garda commissioner, and representatives from the Polish embassy also attended. Many of the locals were outraged that something like this had happened in their community. It was expected that Gardi were going to make a number of other arrests in the coming days, and were also searching for the murder weapon used in the attack on Powell and Marius. On the 14th of March, the bodies of Marius Svajkos 
and Powell Kalite were finally released back to their families. Powell's sister brought his body to the crematorium at Mount Jerome for a brief service there. She was accompanied by the parish priest from Drymna, the Polish chaplain at St. Oron's in the city centre, and a number of Gardi. His ashes would be transported on the same flight as Marius's body, back to their home in Zuchin in southern Poland. Marius's family held a funeral mass at their parish church, and he was buried there that Sunday. The church was packed, and it seemed as if nearly all of the town had turned out for it. Powell's parents attended. The parish priest, Father Zygmunt Varchetska, said, quote, No love is greater than the sacrifice of giving up your life for your friends. End quote. In the wake of the killings, the Polish Information and Culture Centre in Dublin issued a statement saying that they were concerned that those questioned in relation to the killings had been released because they thought it was possible that the suspects could manufacture a story together that would work for their defence, or worse, threaten potential witnesses against them. The centre also said they did have a concern that racism may have been a reason for the attack, and they wanted to begin a serious dialogue with immigrant-led organisations to work to prevent future attacks of this kind. Two weeks after the attack on Powell and Marius, a survey was published by the Gardaí, which showed that one-third of people who were ethnic minorities in Ireland had experienced a racist incident, and one-fifth of those surveyed said they or someone in their household had been a victim of crime. This number is double that of the general population. The report had surveyed 200 people between December 2006 and March of 2007. Philip Watt, director of the National Consultative Committee on Racism and Interculturalism, said it indicated that we needed to increase efforts to tackle racism, which affected every minority community in the country. In the wake of the attack, other migrants in Ireland came forward with their stories of random attacks on them. Many described a similar scene. A mixed group of teenaged boys and girls who began by yelling at them while they walked alone, followed by vicious, unprovoked attacks. There was, and still is, a problem of assaults by groups of roving teens who target people that they perceive as vulnerable, those walking alone, and members of expatriate communities are particularly vulnerable. A Brazilian woman, Cide Yangros, who was set upon in Summer Hill in the North City Centre, said she was thinking of Powell and Marius when she was targeted by the teens in her area. She told the Irish Times, quote, My experience in Ireland has been very bad in most parts of the city. When I talk to older people, they are very nice. I love to talk to them, but young people, I don't like talking to them because they are aggressive. This is not a safe place, end quote. The reaction to the news among the Polish community in Ireland could be seen in the comment section of news websites, with a number of contributors saying that Ireland had become an unfriendly place for the Polish community. One said, quote, Unfortunately, I live and work in Ireland, and more and more often I see that the Irish have had enough. They no longer like us, end quote. Many said the problem was particularly prevalent with younger people, teenagers.
This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, Manscaped. Spring has sprung, and I bet the lads out there are spending more time outside, mowing the lawn, cutting hedges, and other manly gardeny things. But how many of you out there got bush? You know what I'm talking about. What's going on in your Between Me Down There's? If you do, you definitely got to try out the products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. And once you've done your landscape gardening, you'll be all set to enter your manberries into your local horticultural show and sweep that first prize. To help bag best in show, I have an exclusive 20% off discount. Just use the code MENS at manscaped.com. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 kit, which comes with the essential Lawnmower 3.0, a waterproof cordless body trimmer. This is the best trimmer to help you tidy up those man hedges. And don't worry, it features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, thanks to advanced skin safe technology pioneered by Manscaped. In the perfect package, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, making sure your dingleberries are smelling majestic before your Tinder date. You'll also find the Crop Reviver Ball Toner, a spray-on testy toner that's designed to make your nethers smell irresistible. And be sure to add Manscaped's refined cologne to your arsenal so everybody can get the benefit of your awesome man smells. Right now, when you buy Manscaped's perfect package or performance package, you get two free gifts, the Shed travel bag and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code M-E-N-S. It's 2021 and you've still got bush? Change that with Manscaped. On Wednesday, the 12th of March, a 16-year-old was arrested and questioned at Sundrive Garda Station. He was kept overnight and released the next day with Gardy saying they were preparing a file to send to the DPP. Then the 17-year-old was rearrested over the weekend, on Sunday the 16th of March at half past ten that night. He was charged 35 minutes later with the murder of one of the men, Powell Kalite. He had nothing to say in response to the charge. The teen appeared in the children's court on the 19th of March, In that court, neither the lawyers nor the judge wear the gowns and wigs commonly seen in other courts. Only four reporters are allowed in the courtroom at a time. All of this is done in an effort to make the court a more relaxed, child-friendly place, but in reality it's a much sadder environment, given that all the defendants through its doors are kids. The defendant was described as tall and gangly and sported a mullet, He gave a brief, hesitant smile to his family sitting in the courtroom and requested that the judge would allow him to meet with his family after the hearing before he was returned to prison. This was allowed and then the boy was sent back to St. Patrick's Institution for Young Offenders to await the serving of the Book of Evidence. The Garda present in the court said he did not imagine that the book would be ready in advance of the next hearing in the case which was scheduled to occur in two weeks' time. On the 20th of March, the 17-year-old appeared at the High Court, appealing for bail to be granted. 
Detective Garda Eamon Maloney told Mr. Justice John Edwards that it would be the state's case that there was common design between a number of people in the attack that led to the deaths of Marius Svajkos and Powell Kalite, where a number of people had acted with common purpose. Detective Maloney continued that over 200 statements had been taken in the case, and the evidence against the 17-year-old was based on more than one witness. He believed that drink and drugs had played a role in the frenzied attack against the two victims, and that this was the youth who had stabbed the men. Gardy initially opposed bail completely for the young man, but eventually said that they would consent if strict conditions were imposed on the youth. Bail was granted on the condition that the accused stay with an aunt, stay out of the Dublin 12 area, and not have any contact, direct or indirect, with any witnesses, potential witnesses, or co-accused in the case. Michael Bowman, acting for the accused, said the teen's family was willing to consent to any conditions the court felt were appropriate. The boy was also told that he was being ordered to keep sober habits, meaning not only was he to avoid being drunk or high, but that he was to abstain from alcohol and drugs altogether. A curfew was imposed on him from 10pm to 7am, and he was not to seek to obtain a passport or travel documents. A cash lodgement of €4,000 and a bond of €10,000 was entered into by his father, in addition to a personal bond of €12,000. On the 1st of May, the 17-year-old was back in court when the state applied for more time to serve the book of evidence in the case. Judge Patrick McMahon in the Children's Court heard that Gardee were still waiting for certain toxicology reports to be received from the office of the state pathologist. The Gardee were given two further weeks to complete the book and serve it. At the same time, Judge McMahon also dealt with a summons against the 17-year-old, which was unrelated to the murder charges. He'd been charged with possession of cocaine in December of 2007. That matter was adjourned for two weeks to allow the accused get legal advice. He was remanded on continuing bail. On the 12th of June, the young man was back in the children's court to be served with the book of evidence in the case against him for Powell's murder. But instead, he was charged with a second count of murder, this time relating to the death of Marius Svajkos. The teenager was arrested on the charge at the courthouse in the presence of his father and aunt, and Judge McMahon was told he had made no reply in response to the charges. The teen was remanded in custody to St. Patrick's Institution, as a bail application could not be moved in the jurisdiction of the children's court on a murder charge. A week later, a second teenager was before the district court in relation to the deaths of Powell Kalite and Marius Svajkos. 19-year-old Sean Kyo from Inchicore appeared in the Bridewell, charged with the murders of the two men. He had been arrested at 10.46 on the morning of the 17th of June after being brought to the Bridewell Garda station from St. Patrick's Institution. At the same time, he was also charged with the arson of a motorbike, occurring on the same date in February 2008. Judge Derek McLaughlin granted legal aid and remanded Mr. Kyo in custody. The first teen charged in the murders was before the children's court again on the 19th of June, as the state needed further time to deliver the book of evidence. But in the two weeks since his last appearance, 
the accused had turned 18 and so was, for the first time, named as David Curran from Drimna. The court granted a four-week adjournment. Finally, on the 17th of July, David Curran appeared at the children's court, was served with the book of evidence and sent forward for trial on two charges of murder. Curran was silent throughout the brief hearing, where he was accompanied again by his father. He was remanded in custody to St. Patrick's as an application to have his bail revoked was to be heard the following week and to answer charges for three non-related public order offences, which had been brought against him after he was arrested on the 4th of July outside Drimna Castle Boys' School. When that hearing came around, the court was informed that Mr Curran had broken a number of his bail conditions. He had been staying with his aunt in Clondalkin and was found quite a distance from there at Drimna Castle. He'd also been ordered to stay out of Dublin 12, which covered the Crumlin, Drimna and Inchicore areas. Curran was quite intoxicated when Gardy picked him up at 10pm on the 1st of July with a group of youths who were drinking on the school grounds. Guards had given chase to the group and Mr Curran was arrested when he fell, trying to climb a wall to get away. He later told Gardy that he had taken six ecstasy pills. Again, this was a breach of bail conditions. Mr. Curran's counsel said that his client accepted that he was in breach of bail, but said that Mr. Curran was a suicide risk and was awaiting an appointment with the Clondalkin Mental Health Services. The lawyer told the court that the taking of six ecstasy tablets had been an attempt to commit suicide. Judge John Edwards postponed the state's application to revoke bail in order that David Curran could attend his appointment, but said that he wanted the psychiatrist to give evidence after it the next day. He would make a decision on bail at that time. Two days later, a lawyer for the Director of Public Prosecutions told the court that the psychiatrist's report found no mental illness and no psychosis, which indicated a risk of suicide. Mr Justice Edwards read the report and a report provided by the local community worker and decided that the event had been a genuine attempt at suicide, resulting from the extreme pressure the young man was under. Bail was granted on condition that Mr Curran attend Pieta House Mental Health Services, where the community worker had secured a place for him. The judge said he was willing to cut the 18-year-old some slack, but also added that Curran was at the last chance saloon. Continuing bail was granted the following week when the court heard Mr Curran was engaging with the specialised services. David Curran went on trial on the 13th of April 2010. He entered a plea of not guilty to murder, but guilty of manslaughter, with the state rejecting this plea. Sean Kyo, then 21, pleaded not guilty to both charges. Curran and Kyo appeared before Mr Justice Liam McKechnie and a jury of five women and seven men. John O'Kelly, senior counsel for the prosecution, said that this was a clear case of deliberate intention and went on to explain the sequence of events that led to the killings that evening. Mr. Kalite had taken exception to being bumped into by a 15-year-old outside the shops and a scuffle had followed. Two girls had also got involved and then a fight broke out. David Curran's father arrived and then broke up the fight. Mr. Kalite wasn't injured in this incident but was upset. The girls then rang David Curran and shortly thereafter David Curran and Sean Kyo arrived at the row of shops. 
Curran was angry when he arrived, allegedly believing that someone had stabbed his dad. The group of teens walked up Ben Bulban Road and came across Mr. Kalite in his garden. Mr. Kalite's housemates had tried to convince him not to go outside, but it failed. Then the teens attacked Mr. Kalite with David Curran stabbing him in the head with a screwdriver. When Marius Svajkos tried to intervene, he too was stabbed in the head by Curran. The teens then scattered. Mr. O'Kelly told the jury that in this case, the defence of provocation did not apply because neither defendant had been at the chipper when the initial fight broke out. Both of the defendants had come to the scene looking for a fight that night, and O'Kelly continued, quote, If two or more attack another with common intent, then one is as guilty as the other, end quote. Therefore, Sean Kyo was also guilty of the murder of the two men. Galicia Olithada, senior counsel for David Curran, said that his client wasn't disputing that he had caused fatal injuries to the two men, but they argued that the attack had come from a sudden loss of control because he had been provoked. The attack had occurred in circumstances where Mr. Curran was incapable of restraining himself due to the, at least perceived, actions and words of the victim. The events from the evening of the attack began to get more clear as evidence was heard from witnesses who were on Ben Bulban Road and saw what had happened. Ian Flynn was sitting in a car with friends when he saw Powell Kalite leave the chipper. A teenage boy had bumped into him and Mr. Kalite chased the boy. Powell was pushed by an older man up against the shutters of a butcher and the man said, quote, leave it out. Two girls had also gotten involved in the fight and Powell had ended up on the ground, but afterwards, quote, stormed back to his house. A girl threw a wine bottle up the road in his direction and it smashed on the ground. Then a group of young men came up the road. One was about 17 with red hair and he kicked the car that the witness Mr. Flynn was sitting in. Mr. Flynn agreed with defence counsel Mr. Oladeda that Powell had put down his bag of chips to chase the teenager and that he'd pulled one of the girl's hair too. The red-haired teen was fired up, he said, and seemed to think that he, the witness, had been involved in the altercation somehow. The following day, the court heard from a witness, Dean Costello. He said that he'd seen a, quote, little young fella brushing off Mr. Kalite. The man had then followed the 15-year-old, and a commotion ensued. The witness saw Mr. Kalite fall to the ground where he was kicked a few times. Mr. Costello said he didn't think the beating was particularly severe. Then the court heard from Tracy Dillon. She had been standing outside the row of shops on Ben Bulban Road and saw a teenager in a grey tracksuit bump into a bald man. There were two girls with the teen boy. A scuffle broke out. An older man got out of a jeep and came over. All of them were kicking the man on the ground and eventually the older man took the teen boy away. Ms. Dillon said one of the girls was carrying a bottle of vodka and the other had what looked like a bottle of wine. As the bald man walked past them, one of the girls, quote, gave him a clatter across the face, across the neck, end quote. After this, Ms. Dillon said that the man just crossed the road. The teenage boy returned and he and the young girls walked towards the local pub, the Marble Arch. When she saw them again, they were in a larger group of teens who were running back towards the row of shops. 
she noticed a taller teen wearing a black and red jacket who had a screwdriver in his hand. Ms. Dillon said the group were screaming, quote, where is the bastard? Where is the cunt? She told the court that at that point she rang the guardie as she felt there was going to be an altercation. Ms. Dillon told the court, quote, you just kind of knew what was going to happen, end quote. Ms. Dillon then got into her car and drove home, which was about 10 houses away from the victim's house. There, she saw a man lying on the ground on the footpath, and then she saw the bald man from the shops also lying in the garden. Ms. Dillon described his position as lying with his face smashed into the step. After this, Darren Lee, a butcher who worked in one of the shops on Ben Bulban Road, recalled that as he was finishing closing up the shop, he heard banging on the shutters. He and his landlord, Rory O'Connor, made their way out of the shop and said they saw a bald man on the ground who got up and staggered towards the chipper. They then saw the girls across the road roaring at him, one of whom he saw had a bottle in her hand. Mr. Lee went back inside to ring the guards and got his car keys to drive the bald man home as he, quote, sensed there was going to be trouble, end quote. Another witness, Ms. Terry Kelly, took the stand and told the court that she was walking down Ben Bulban Road that evening and had seen a group of people standing outside the shops. She knew from the look of them that something was wrong. Ms. Kelly saw punches being thrown and kicks being landed in the course of a scuffle, and two men were on the ground, but she hadn't seen a weapon. Ms. Kelly then made her way towards a Polish woman who was nearby and tried to reassure her, telling her an ambulance was on the way. She wanted to try and give first aid, but she was afraid she'd make things worse, so she didn't. When the ambulance arrived, Ms. Kelly left the scene. Marion Corr had been at the butcher's when she saw a group of boys and girls. She had seen one of the girls was crying and Ms. Corr heard someone yell, I'm going to get you. Another group rushed past her from the direction of the pub and a male in a dark hoodie had something in his hand and was acting very aggressively, she said. He'd yelled, is that them? Ms. Corr said she hadn't heard the young man yell anything about his father being stabbed, but he did seem to be out of control and was shouting, where are they, where are they? The final witness before the court that day was a teenaged boy who appeared via video link as he was underage. He was not named in the media. He'd been walking down the road at the time of the attack. The witness started off questioning why he needed to hold a Bible to swear the oath. The judge told him he just did. His evidence was that he had seen a lot of people running that evening and that they had scattered. The boy said he'd been drunk at the time, so he wasn't sure what had happened. When the witness was told that they would resume his evidence on Monday, he said, quote, Why? This is my seventh poxy time to come to this court. End quote. In the end, though he agreed to make himself available, his evidence was given by way of statement. On the fourth day of the trial, Monday the 19th of April, the chief state pathologist, Mary Cassidy, gave evidence regarding the findings of the post-mortem results. Mr. Kalite had suffered two cross-shaped injuries on the left side of his scalp. One of these had penetrated his skull and brain, leaving an 11-centimeter track behind. Mary Cassidy said that due to the extensive damage to the brain, it was unlikely he could have recovered from it. Powell also had three broken teeth and multiple abrasions to his face, likely caused by punches, kicks, or falling down. He'd had a collapsed lung and abrasions and bruises on his arms. 
Marius Svajkos had died of a single penetrating wound to the left side of his head, with a similar 11-centimetre-long injury left in his brain. He had a fracture to the right side of his skull, which was either from being hit or from striking the ground when he fell. Professor Cassidy said Mr. Svajkos could not have recovered from the injury to his brain. Further, he had developed pneumonia while in hospital, which had brought on death more quickly. Then, a primary school-aged girl testified via video link in the case. Again, she was not named or present in the courtroom itself due to her age. The girl had witnessed the altercation outside the shops and at the two Polish men's home. She had met with a group of teenagers at the Grand Canal in Drymna at around 3pm. They'd stayed there for an hour and some of the boys had jumped into the lock for a swim. In response to questions from counsel, the girl told the court that she didn't remember drinking out of a vodka bottle at the canal, though she said it was possible that she had. She also agreed it was likely that Mr. Curran and the 15-year-old involved in the original argument had been smoking cannabis and taking pills known as Roach's Yellow and Blues, a street name for benzodiazepam. The witness recalled that eventually the group had left the canal and went to a green area up the road. Mr. Kyo and Mr. Curran had arrived with a bag full of Alcopops, but the girl said she couldn't remember this. Then the group split up and she and two friends went over to the chipper. She described the altercation outside the chipper. The 15-year-old had bumped into the bald Polish man. The Polish man had chased her friend around the car and the fight broke out. The man had grabbed her by the hair and she had fallen on top of him. Then another man in a passing car had stopped and yelled, quote, What's going on? He's only a kid. Leave it out. End quote. After the fight was over, the girl said she'd seen the defendant, Mr. Curran, running and yelling that someone had stabbed his father. The girl said she told Mr. Curran that this wasn't true, but he didn't listen and just kept running. Up the road, the girl said she saw one of the Polish men standing in a front garden and the girl had seen what she thought was Curran hitting the man. She had seen David Curran with the screwdriver at the local chipper and saw him scuffle with one of the Polish men at the house. Then she saw David Curran stab the man and the man fell over the garden wall. The girl said she saw the second Polish man jump over the wall to his friend and David started fighting with him too. She said she thought the man was trying to stop him. She thought she saw David stab the second man and this man fell too. David Curran then ran towards the local park. On cross-examination, counsel for Mr Curran suggested to the teenager that his client had been stabbed in the back in an incident two days before and that the wound from this injury was visible when he was swimming in the canal. But The girl said she didn't remember this. She also admitted it was possible that she got the sequence of events wrong and the order in which the men had been hit. On the 21st of April, one of the men's housemates took to the stand. Camelia Zeramata said that after the row at the chipper, Powell had pushed past her on the footpath on the way back to the house and she noticed that he was upset and he had a scratch on his forehead. She asked him what happened and Powell had said, quote, I'm almost 30 and those stupid little punks attacked me. She'd been standing on the path with Powell when a group of teenagers walked by on the other side of the road. They started screaming and she heard one say, all Polish are fuckers and other anti-Polish things. She'd asked them why they'd said that and the group then ran in her direction. 
Ms. Zeramata said that one of the group had a tool in his hand. Camila told the court that the man seemed to be going for her head, so she ducked as he attacked. Powell couldn't avoid the swing, and he fell to the ground. Ms. Zeramata then saw Marius jump through the gate at the front of the garden, and the same person swung at Marius. He fell to the ground too, and Camila recalled hearing the sound of Marius's head hitting the ground. Then Ms. Zeramata's brother, Radek, gave evidence. He had gone to the shop at about half past six that evening and saw Mr. Kalite being slapped hard by some teenaged girls. He'd asked Powell if he was okay, but Mr. Kalite didn't respond and just headed home. Radek spoke to a woman outside the shops who told him that his friend had been hit, quote, unfairly. When he got back to the house, Mr. Zeramata and his sister had tried to persuade Powell not to go back outside, but they weren't able to stop him. There was a group of people outside and Mr. Zeramata saw one of them hit Powell with something in his hand, which he later realised was a screwdriver. Marius had begun crying and had bent down to help Powell and was struck as well. When he was outside, he saw both men lying on the ground in the front of the house and heard one of the teenage girls say, quote, Oh my God, they killed him. On cross, he agreed with Olidida, acting for Mr. Curran, that he'd seen Mr. Kalite come down the stairs yelling, quote, I will kill them all, and that at the time, Powell was a little drunk. He'd also told Gardi that Mr. Kalite was, quote, like a lunatic. He was very mad. He was so mad he was crying, end quote. Mr. Zeramata said that Marius was a little drunk too. They were both a little drunk, and he knew Marius had been drinking vodka that day. The rest of that day in court was taken up with legal argument without the presence of the jury. When court resumed the following day, evidence was heard from another girl who had been present on the day of the attack. Again, because she was underage, once again, she gave evidence by video link and was not named in the media. Her phone had been examined during the investigation and she had made a number of calls to the defendants, Mr. Curran and Mr. Kyo, on the night of the attack. She admitted having made four calls to David Curran between 6.34 and 6.40pm, right after the fight outside the chipper, where she'd told David Curran about it. Shortly after, she saw the defendants running from the direction of the Marble Arch and Curran was yelling because he thought someone had stabbed his father. The girl told the court that someone had rang him and told him this, but that it wasn't her. The witness said she hadn't noticed the screwdriver until they had started talking over the Polish people at the house. She only saw the first man being hit and falling to the ground. She did not see the attack on the second man. Throughout the rest of that evening, a number of text messages were exchanged between the girl and the defendants. At around 10pm, she texted David Curran, saying that she had just seen a report on the news, and a few minutes later, she texted again, saying that it was a mad night. Curran had told her to delete the message and get a new phone number. After this, Mr. Kyo had texted her, saying that he had seen something about the men's death on teletext, followed by, quote, we're fucked. The girl responded, I know, yeah, and Mr. Kyo had then said, quote, I had to help my mate, I burnt me new runners and all, swear to God we're fucked, end quote. At a quarter past midnight, Curran had texted the girl again saying, quote, You hear about that in Drimna, it's going around I done it because I got stabbed the other night, fucking weirdos, I wasn't in Drimna all day, end quote. 
One message that was not sent but was sitting in the girls' drafts folder read, quote, Do you know what I was thinking? You could say me and you were over at Redacted's, babysitting, because me and you are the only ones without an alibi. Redacted 1 does, Redacted 2 is saying she was in his gaff, Redacted 3 is saying he was at Redacted 4's gaff, end quote. The witness denied that she and Mr. Curran had attempted to leave a record of texts that everything was fine, or that she had tried to set up a false alibi. She was asked directly if Mr. Curran had tried to get her to help cover things up, and she said, quote, No, not really. He was just trying to get the two of us out of it. End quote. The next day of proceedings began when the court heard from Detective Garda William Ryan. He had been present when Mr. Kyo was arrested two days after the killings. Kyo had said that he didn't have anything to do with the attack and he had nothing to hide. He did admit to having been there, but said someone else had done the attack and insisted that a girl who had said he had stabbed the men was lying. Kyo wouldn't name the person he said was responsible, however, saying he was not a rat. Afterwards, he admitted to having burnt his runners at the flats and having washed his tracksuit bottoms because there was blood on both items. He said the extent of his involvement was having kicked one of the men once and that he had then run off. During his guard interviews, David Curran had initially named Mr. Kyo as the one who had done the stabbing, and Curran had said very little else even after seven interviews with Gardee, but the court was about to hear that David Curran now admitted that he was the only one who had stabbed Powell and Marius. On the 30th of April, David Curran took the stand. He said he had gone out at around 10am that morning and went to the off-licence where he bought a bottle of vodka and a few cans. He then headed up to the Grand Canal and was sitting at one of the locks. Two teenage girls had joined him, along with Shang Kyo, his co-accused, and three other boys. They drank and swam in the canal and smoked some hash. He'd also taken 15 to 20 roaches that day. After a while, they moved to a green across the canal in St. Michael's Estate in Inchicor. They drank alcopops, took more Valium and smoked more hash. At around 5pm, Curran and a few others went back to the lock on the canal. There, he found a bottle of wine, a screwdriver and a small motorbike. He decided to keep the screwdriver to use later while breaking into factories. Curran said he tried to take the moped for a spin, but it wouldn't start. It was then burnt out. After this, Curran got a call from his younger cousin to say that someone had stabbed his dad outside the chipper. He was angry and ran down to the shops on Binbulban Road. Curran told the court that at this time, he was out of his head on drugs and alcohol. He was running and yelling and people were pointing him towards something. Curran said he had attacked a car, but people had told him that those inside weren't involved and pointed him up the road. Then he saw the people in the garden and yelled at them asking, was it them who had stabbed his dad? And the man was screaming back. The woman in the garden was trying to keep the man back and so Curran said he'd gone towards him and stabbed him. Then the second man came and jumped over the railings in the garden. Curran said that this had made him so mad. Then he stabbed the second man. The defendant insisted he had totally lost control. 
Curran denied being told that the fight at the chipper didn't involve his dad, even though he had told Gardy he had heard this, and a witness said the same thing. He admitted that the Polish man had not moved towards him. Barrister for the prosecution, John O'Kelly, put it to him that he was going to attack the man one way or the other, and that Curran was out looking for him. David Curran responded, saying he wasn't sure. John O'Kelly said, quote, You headed down Ben Bulban Road with the screwdriver in your hand after attacking the car. You were going up looking for a fight with someone. You were going to use the screwdriver. End quote. Curran had replied, Yeah. After this, the defence called a neuropharmacologist to explain how the various drugs the teens had taken affected someone. Dr. Brian Kirby said that the benzodiazepines they'd taken were most often used as anti-anxiety medication, but that they could sometimes cause agitation and in rare cases rages and aggression. This was especially the case when the drugs were mixed with alcohol and in those who already had problems with aggression. Dr. Kirby, a senior lecturer in the Royal College of Surgeons, agreed with Mr. O'Kelly for the state that this reaction was very unusual. And with that, the hearing of evidence in the case was completed. In his closing statement, John O'Kelly said he did not accept Mr. Curran's defence of provocation and that, quote, if you attack someone with a screwdriver, you're going to cause death or at least serious injury, end quote. He argued that there was a clear admission from David Curran that he had stabbed the two men, and Sean Kyo was part of the common design. Mr. Kelly continued that Kyo was asking the jury to believe that he was the only one who didn't know that David Curran had a screwdriver on him. Curran and Kyo had gone to the scene together to take care of whoever had been in the earlier fight. Kyo had then kicked one of the men after David Curran had stabbed him rather than the more obvious reaction of running away. David Curran had concocted the story about receiving a call saying his father had been stabbed, and the girl who had been present for the fight and had called Curran said that she had not told him his father had been stabbed. Then David Curran's defence barrister, Galicia Oladeda, told the jury that this was a difficult case, asking the jury to determine whether this was murder or manslaughter and went on to suggest that we would be better off with a grading system of murder like they have in the United States. In the Irish court, what constitutes manslaughter varies wildly from where there is no intent to something like the case before them, which, according to the defence counsel, involved voluntary intoxication, intent, and, quote, the vicious killing of two human beings, end quote. The law should reflect that range, but counsel said it didn't, and so the jury were left to make their decision. Oladeda said that David Curran had not planned the attack on Mr. Kalite and Mr. Svajkos, and had been reacting to receiving the news of his father being stabbed. He had gone after the men who he thought were responsible for that, and had done so while completely out of control. Patrick Gageby, senior counsel, appearing on behalf of Sean Kyo, said that his client had participated in what happened in one awful, stupid and regrettable way. Mr. Kyo admitted to having kicked Mr. Kalite in the head when he fell to the ground after Curran had stabbed him. It was a terrible thing, said Mr. Gageby, but it was the end of his involvement. After the attack, Mr. Kyo had been seen crying and sweating 
and said he was after making mistake. Gageby argued that though Curran had been callous and had attempted to mislead Gardy, he had not planned to kill or seriously harm someone that night. Effectively, his client had been part of a group of teenagers who were riled up and excitable, who had gotten carried away in the most horrific of manners, but no one had set out to cause such harm. Though Gageby admitted they all likely had trouble on their minds. Then Mr. Justice Liam McKechnie spoke to the jury. He said that if they didn't find David Curran guilty of murder, then his plea of manslaughter would stand. They needed to consider if there had been provocation in the case, and whether the shouting and movements of the victims could have triggered a total loss of control in Mr. Curran. In relation to Mr. Kyo, The jurors needed to consider if he had been part of a common design with Mr. Curran to assault the men, and, if he was, whether Curran's actions had gone beyond the common design. Justice McKechnie continued, If you come to the conclusion that the attack with the screwdriver was outside the common design, then Mr. Kyo is not guilty of murder. There was no option to find Mr. Kyo guilty of manslaughter. However, just before the jury began their deliberations, a charge of assault causing harm was put to Sean Kyo. He pleaded guilty to that charge. And so the jury acquitted him of murder. The jury returned with their verdict in relation to David Curran after just under six hours and reached a unanimous guilty verdict on the charge relating to Mr. Kalite's death and a majority verdict of 11 to 1 in relation to the death of Mr. Svajkos. After the verdict was read, the judge said that the killings were, quote, brutal, savage, and could be described as sadistic, end quote. He said he agreed with the jury's decision unhesitatingly. On Friday the 7th of May 2010, David Curran returned to court for sentencing, Mr. Justice McKechnie said that the assault had occurred over an almost meaningless incident and that the level of force required to inflict the fatal blows with the screwdriver was chilling, made even more so because Mr. Curran had done this twice. Victim impact statements were read to the court. Mr. Kalite's parents said, quote, Powell didn't know how to fight or how much cruelty and anger you have to have in yourself to take someone else's life away, end quote. He and his girlfriend had planned to marry, and he was to have moved back to Poland in June of the year he died. The statement continued, quote, All his dreams will remain unrealised. They will never have a chance to happen, end quote. Marius Svajko's family said he had been full of life, happiness, dreams and plans. He was honest and hardworking, and he'd called home every day since he'd moved to Ireland two years before. They said, quote, We know that no matter what we do, there will always be one person missing, a person we would like to share our feelings and experiences with. Both families thanked the court and the jury for their verdict, and the people of Drimna for their support. Mr. Curran apologised to the families through his lawyers and was handed down two mandatory life sentences to run concurrently. On the 19th of May 2010, Sean Kyo, the 21-year-old father of one, appeared again in the Central Criminal Court before Mr. Justice Liam McKechnie for sentencing in relation to the charge of assault causing harm. 
The court heard that Kyo had 75 previous convictions. Detective Garda William Ryan told Mr Justice McKechnie that in May of 2009, Mr Kyo had been sentenced to five years on two counts of endangerment, five years for criminal damage, three years for the unauthorised taking of a vehicle, and six months for driving without insurance. These sentences were to run concurrently with the final two years suspended, and he was also banned from driving for seven years. Kyo had been out on bail in relation to these charges when he was involved in the altercation in which Mr Kalite and Mr Svajkos had died. A number of factors were put forward by Kyo's legal team as mitigation, and the court heard evidence from Kyo's partner who said that their three-year-old daughter visited her father in jail every week. Mr Justice McKechnie took these factors into account but noted that Kyo had delivered a vicious kick to Mr Kalite after he'd been stabbed, and that he knew Curran had a screwdriver and had seen the stabbing. Continuing, quote, It showed a deep and sickening sense of a personality to which society should not be exposed. On any level, it was pure thuggery. If he'd be capable of doing this sort of thing, what else is he capable of doing? End quote. McKechnie continued, quote, he was a dying man. He was utterly exposed and defenceless, without any protection. It wasn't enough that David Curran had stabbed Powell Kalite to satisfy Sean Kyo's lust for harm. He had to feed his own lust, and he did so. He showed utter contempt for a fellow human. End quote. Five years was the maximum sentence available to the judge. McKechnie set four and a half years, with six months off for mitigation. Sean Kyo was sentenced to four years for his role in the attack. In December of 2011, David Curran brought an appeal in his case. The Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed the case, with the court noting that Curran had already been engaged in a series of destructive actions before he had attacked the two Polish men. He had been in a drink and drug fueled violent rage, which indicated aggression and revenge, not provocation. Then, in July of the following year, David Curran brought an application to the CCA asking for his appeal to be referred to the Supreme Court, saying there was a point of law of exceptional public importance that needed to be considered by the higher court. Curran's legal team argued that they had a number of matters they wanted to put before the court. The state opposed the application for the referral to the Supreme Court, and the CCA reserved its decision. In February of 2013, the Court of Criminal Appeal rejected this application from Curran's legal team. The three-judge panel found that the grounds of provocation did not satisfy the statutory test. Mr Justice O'Donnell said the court, quote, did not and does not consider that this point involves any point of law of general application, still less one of exceptional public importance, end quote. The next month, David Curran's father, Michael McGurk, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role in what is called here a tiger kidnapping after pleading guilty to being involved in the crime. He had been part of a gang who entered the home of Nicola Hall, a bank official. They entered the home while Ms. Hall and her children were asleep and waited for her partner, Mr. Jones, to arrive home from working as a taxi driver. The gang then split the family up and Mr. Jones and their two children were bundled into the back of a van 
while Ms. Hall was ordered to go to the Bank of Ireland branch in Inchicore where she worked the next morning as if nothing was wrong. She followed instructions that she was to wait until the bank vault's time lock went off at half past eleven and then fill a bag with currency. After doing this, Miss Hall left the bank and got further instructions by phone to drive her car to a certain location and leave it there with the keys in the ignition. Elsewhere, after five hours in the van, the driver left and one of the children was able to squeeze out of the vehicle and alert a passerby. Meanwhile, a 999 call from a phone box in Temple Oak was placed to say that the family was tied up in the back of a van. When the phone box was examined, fingerprints were found that matched McGurk and a partial DNA profile matching his was found on the handbrake of the van. In September of 2014, there was a fire at David Curran's family home in Crumlin, which Gardy suspected was an arson attack. The five people in the house had to jump from the window of the house to escape the blaze and all five were treated in hospital for injuries they sustained. In July of 2016, David Curran's brother was stabbed in a violent assault at Flats in Rutland Avenue in Dolphin's Barn in the South City Centre. According to the Irish Independent, 23-year-old Paul Curran was not suspected of being involved in serious crime, but Gardy were investigating the incident to see if it was related to a local dispute between low-level drug dealers. He was rushed to St. James's Hospital, but died of his injuries. Two 18-year-olds, a man and a woman, were detained by Gardy. The 18-year-old man was subsequently charged with Paul Curran's murder. Neither David Curran nor Michael McGurk were granted temporary release to attend Paul's funeral. However, in 2019, the Irish Independent reported that David Curran was being allowed out on short day release to visit with family. He was nine years into his life sentence for the double murder. The Irish Independent published exclusive photos showing Curran meeting with them at a church-owned building in Clondalkin with the visit lasting eight hours. Marius's sister, Malgorzata, said that the family were, quote, deeply upset and overwhelmed with the news. We are terrified with the possibility that this may start the process that will let him go free. This is adding enormous pain to the struggle we go through every day. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Stephen Potts, Deirdre Madigan, Bambi Higgins, Maura Carroll, Kim Baldwin, and Victoria. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Manscaped. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, 
www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.